This sermon is the fourth in a four-part series, a journey with four spiritual guides, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, and Ramakrishna. It's been exploring how these different voices sing together in unison, sing together in harmony, but that may nevertheless be a manifestation of one spirit and mystery. As we prepare to weave this final strand for now into the tapestry of world religions, it may be helpful to reiterate, for the sake of transparency, my own personal touchstones for navigating our postmodern world. They're the same ones that I shared in my first sermon from this pulpit about pluralism, pragmatism, and progressivism. Pluralism means that I think there is more than one legitimate life-giving way to navigate our complex world. That's different from relativism, which means that any way goes, but pluralism means there's more than one way. Ultimately, many more than four guides are needed because there's no singular way that could possibly serve all people in all times and all places. And that's why I'm grateful for this big tent of Unitarian Universalism that draws from six sources. Direct experience, the words and deeds of prophetic men and women, wisdom from the world's traditions, Jewish and Christian teachings naming that Judeo-Christian heritage, humanist teachings which includes modern science and earth-centered traditions. And from the perspective of this sermon series, some will find Krishna helpful as a spiritual guide, others Buddha, still others Jesus, Ramakrishna, or science. Few would find them all equally helpful, but a Unitarian Universalist congregation seeks to be a place in which you can be accompanied, aided, and challenged as you seek to follow and discern the way that is right for you at this time and place in your life, and to be challenged by those other voices. Pragmatism means that I'm less interested in what people say and more interested in what people do, in what works. Pragmatism means that behavior is believable. Or as Jesus said, by, your fruit, by their fruit you shall know them. In regard to the various spiritual guides of the past or the present, pragmatism means being skeptical about all those claims in the various religious traditions that can't be repeated and experienced anew in our time and place, in our own first-hand direct experience. It means in the end caring less about the exact uh, historical details surrounding figures like Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, or Ramakrishna, and more about whether the teachings attributed to those figures help with the predicaments in which I find myself today or in which we find ourselves today and whether they can help us lead a more beautiful, authentic, more compassionate life in this world here and now. Progressivism means that although I do not think there's any guarantee that things will get better, we should still do our best to work for a better world. Indeed, the long-run scenario that I see scientists predicting doesn't actually sound that much like progress. It goes something like this. One trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, the accelerating expansion of the universe will have disintegrated the fabric of matter itself. Every star in the universe will have burnt out, plunging the cosmos into a state of absolute darkness and leaving behind nothing but spent husks of collapsed matter. All free matter, whether on planetary surfaces or in interstellar space, will have decayed, eradicating any remnants of life. 
The stellar corpses littering the empty universe will have evaporated into a brief hailstorm of elementary particles. Only the implacable gravitational expansion will continue, driven by the currently inexplicable force called dark matter, dark energy, which will keep pushing the extinguished universe deeper and deeper into an eternal and unfathomable blackness. That's actually a pretty beautiful description of something that's pretty bleak. <laughs> In the end, perhaps the truth is not that love wins, but that entropy wins. But in the meantime, we have this life. We have one another. And regardless of what will happen one trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, I'm much more concerned for what happens if love wins, if compassion wins, if only in the short run. And progressivism means a commitment to do all we can, trying to work together in harmony with these different voices to make a life better for us, for our grandchildren, if only locally, regionally, and provisionally. Pluralism, progressivism, pragmatism. Those are the touchstones that I use to navigate our post-modern world. If you have other or different touchstones, I'd be interested to hear them. But for now, along these lines, I'm going to pull a, a small sleight of hand in that I would like to talk um, about Ramakrishna as spiritual guide. I want to talk about that less by talking directly about Ramakrishna and more by talking about Professor Jeffrey Kripal, who you heard about during the spoken meditation. Uh, Ramakrishna lived from 1836 to 1886. He was a 19th century Bengali mystic. And many consider uh, the book that was written about him, he, like Jesus and Buddha, didn't write anything himself, but a book was written about him based on diaries that were of, of someone who was present there. It's called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Has any, any of you read that or parts of it? Okay, a few. Uh, that's considered a modern religious classic, and indeed, Ramakrishna's face, if you go to Calcutta today, it's all over the place. Uh, and perhaps I'll preach a sermon on some future date focusing on Ramakrishna. But for now, I'm less interested in this sermon se series and exploring yet one more historical religious figure who died before anyone living today was born. And I'm more interested in reflecting on the religious experience and scholarship of someone like Jeffrey Kripal, who is very much alive and living in Texas. But here's the twist. Kripal wrote his dissertation on Ramakrishna. And that experience of deeply immersing himself in the life and scholarship of that 19th century Bengali mystic is likely part of what helped cultivate and trigger that intense religious experience described earlier that he had in 1989. Recall that his body was overtaken by that incredibly subtle, immensely pleasurable, and terrifyingly powerful energy. And it was after he had been participating, that happened after participating for days in the annual Bengali celebration of the goddess Kali in the streets and temples of Calcutta. As a Westerner in a foreign land to him, Kripal was raised, uh, has raised the ire of fundamentalist Hindus for following in the footsteps of his doctoral advisor, uh, Wendy Doniger, in bringing a post-Freudian psychoanalytic lens to the study of the Hindu tradition. For example, the subtitle of Kripal's dissertation is The Mystical and the Erotic in the life and teachings of Ramakrishna. 
And legend has it that when Kripal was defending his dissertation at the University of Chicago, one of the questions he was asked was about his preferred methodological tool as a scholar, his preferred method of engaging religious texts. Without missing a beat, he said, a very big Freudian screwdriver. (laughs) Pun intended, of course, because with Freud, the pun is always intended, even if unintended and unconscious. Now, in all seriousness, I would like to take that Freudian screwdriver pun and connect it with the point made earlier about both the power and the limitation of the scientific method. In the words of the 20th century Indian mystic um, Bhagwan Rajneesh, Freud only got to the third chakra. The implication is that Freud and science generally is right as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Indeed, maybe it can't go far enough. It might be a limit of the method of demanding objective, repeatable, verifiable laboratory conditions. Uh, and that relates to that, uh, those highly influential third chakras. Translated into more familiar scientific terms, Uh, Those three um, chakras are the anal, the genital, and the digestive. You know, you may have heard some of those anal retentive. We can think of some of those Freudian terms we've heard in the past. These areas relate especially to our unconscious motives related to sexual desire and greed, as well as shame, disgust, and fear. And there's a lot to say about all of that, but I don't want us to get lost this morning on the psychotherapist's couch. You can, you know, pay somebody a lot of money an hour to work that out for you. The point for now is that rational science is better at addressing the aspects of the human condition that are represented by those first three chakras than it is at addressing the subjective, the poetic, the interspiritual mystical love of the fourth chakra, the heart chakra, or the still speaking ecstasy of the throat chakra into the near absorption state of the third eye opening, that right brain third eye opening, uh, to the complete absorption of the seventh chakra, the unitive state. Now, from the opposite direction, just as spiritual teachers have criticized scientists for only getting to the third chakra, many orthodox religions are rightly criticized for stopping just above the waist. That is, many traditional religions understand the mystical love of the divine. They get that part right sometimes, but their approaches to the anal, the genital, the digestive parts of the human condition, those parts below the waist, are often nonsensical inhumane and unrealistic, to say the least. And I would invite you to consider that as the reason why there's so much excitement. So this this is a talk about a journey with four spiritual guides. Let me make a quick analogy to the Christian tradition. I think that that stopping just above the waist is related to why there's so much excitement anytime anybody mentions Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Although I don't think that the historical Jesus had a relationship with Mary Magdalene. I can tell you more about why that is later. I do think that archetypally, The mentioning of Mary Magdalene and Jesus exposes that the orthodox tradition about Jesus, for the most part, stops just just above the waist. It's what one Yale scholar calls sex and the single savior. There's there's a problem there. (laughs) And if your primary image of the sacred is a celibate, individual, male, there's an unconscious knowledge, Freud would say, that there are huge aspects of the human condition that that your image of the divine neglects if your image of the divine is a single celibate male, especially if you are female or interested in being a non-celibate male. Invoking the name of Mary Magdalene fascinates many people for precisely that reason. She reminds us that there's a huge gap in Orthodox Christianity. 
And I do have a future Easter sermon in the works, maybe for 2015, called The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene. But for now, my point is that Unitarian Universalism is in a prime position to bridge the gap between science and spirituality, to be a place where the full spectrum of the human condition can be taken seriously. William James, whose white crow analogy that I mentioned earlier, called such approach radical empiricism, radical empiricism, a faithfulness to the full data of the human experience that refuses to ignore anomalies simply because they do not fit into the reigning scientism of the day. Now, this approach doesn't mean, of course, that anything goes, and there are good reasons to continue to be skeptical of strands of spirituality that are superficial, that are flaky, that are anti-intellectual, and that are socially disengaged. Kripal calls himself a mystical humanist, a mystical humanist, a term I like quite a lot, which I take to mean someone who is primarily interested in the mystical experiences of humans in this world, as opposed to someone who's primarily interested just in revelations by a god that's out there somewhere, and two, who wants to bring the humanist concern with reason and rationality to bear on mystical experiences as much as is possible. And as a result of speaking boldly about his own direct experiences, Kripal has had many other religious, professional religious scholars tell him privately about their similar experiences and those of their family and friends, which has led him to wonder how it is that all these religious experiences, these powerful religious encounters, which seem to be so meaning, meaningful, so energizing, so creative, how are they so seldom allowed a clear voice in public by religion scholars who are, you would think, the best equipped to, to examine them with academic rigor and integrity. So we don't hear much about them in published scholarship, and Kripal's really at the vanguard of trying to change that and giving people permission to. It helps to be tenured, before, and he recommends that before you start doing that. Uh, he tells the story about uh, being in a divinity school and seeing a sign that said, please report suspicious activity to the dean of students, except someone had crossed out suspicious and written in religious. And I invite you to consider that we're missing our full potential as a religious movement of Unitarian Universalism if we stop at the third chakra and report all religious activity as suspicious. As I've said, science is an incredibly powerful way of coming to understand the world, but it is most effective for repeatable events, observable by independent third parties. But scholars like Kripal and mystics throughout the ages invite us to consider that there are equally important truths about the world that are strange, that are uncanny, that are subjective and experienced directly in an individual's first hand experience. In Kripal's words, the limits of scientific materialism here are captured in a joke about the man searching for his car keys. Another man comes up and says, well, where did you lose your car keys? He says, oh, in the basement. So, so why are you out here looking in the driveway? He asks in confusion. Oh, well, the light is much better out here. Although we should continue to look for rationalist explanations on which we can focus the full light of day, and that we should continue to bring the full light of day as much as is possible with modern technology and scans and MRIs to mystical experiences, mystics nevertheless remind us that there really might be something worth looking for in the dark. And Kripal invites us to consider that we make a mistake if we too quickly dismiss all claims about spiritual experiences as merely irrationalism 
anecdote, and pseudoscience, even if some of them are irrationalism, anecdote, and pseudoscience. The trick is discerning the difference. Moreover, in our postmodern world, science itself, in both the theory of relativity and quantum physics, has showed us just how strange and uncanny the universe is. As the scientist J.B.S. Haldone, who is an atheist, famously said, my own suspicion is that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, it's queerer than we can suppose, because we see everything from our very, very limited perspective. Finding ourselves in such a universe, we can use all the help we can get from both science and spirituality to find our way forward together and to make the most of this life and this world. I don't know where that journey of science and spirituality may take us. No one does in advance, but that's part of the excitement. And I'm glad to be with you on that journey with all our voices together.